One of the great sins committed by humans is the sin of pride. Uh, it was the sin of Satan uh, before us, and then it's uh, certainly been a sin that has plagued humanity for quite some time. And sometimes that, that pride uh, manifests itself in boasting. And I was just doing some research on some of the great boasts of our times, and here are a few of them. And you may have heard of this one, but of course, the White Star Line uh, uh, at, at the Hartford and Wolf Shipyard in Belfast finished making the Titanic. And according to their archives, one of the employees of the White Star Line said, not even God himself could sink this ship. John Lennon, the founder of the Beatles, along with Paul McCartney, said in 1966, Christianity will go, it will vanish and shrink. I needn't argue about that. I'm right, and it will be proved right. We are more popular than Jesus now. I don't know which will go first, rock and roll or Christianity. And, of course, Lennon was shot 14 years later by Mark David Chapman in the streets of New York. Voltaire, the, uh, the fr uh, French enlightened champion who despiser of Christianity, said this, 100 years from my day, there will not be a Bible on earth except one that is looked upon by an antiquarian curiosity seeker. And, of course, my understanding is that uh, the Evangelical Society of Geneva used Voltaire's house in Geneva to store Bibles some 50 years after his death. Muhammad Ali, great heavyweight champion of our time, said this. I wish I could do it in his voice. I'm not the greatest. I'm the double greatest. Not only do I knock them out, I pick the round. I'm the boldest, the prettiest, the most superior, the most scientific, the most skillful fighter in the ring today. It's hard to be humble when you're as great as I am. That wasn't bad, right? Sadly, Muhammad Ali died of septic shock uh, complicated by Parkinson's disease, likely brought about because of the constant blows to his head. Well, those are the wrong kind of boast, the wrong kind of boast, right? We don't want to emulate those in any way. But there's a right kind of boast, and we're going to see that in our text today, but it goes all the way back even to the Old Testament where Jeremiah in chapter 9 says this, Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast of his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not the rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For I delight in these things, declares the Lord. The Apostle Paul, probably taking some understanding from Jeremiah, uh, is boasting about the Thessalonian church in our text this morning as we begin uh, to cover the book of Second Thessalonians after finishing First Thessalonians, when he says this, We ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God. And reflecting upon this, it is my great desire that as we look at this opening to Second Thessalonians this morning, that we would be the kind of church that would cause an apostle to boast about to the other churches of God. Let's go to the Lord in prayer now. Father, we do pray in faith that you would show us truth in your word. God, help us to understand the wonderful principle of walking hand in hand with you and with each other for the glory of God. You will return. Either you will come back and establish your kingdom or we will die and we will stand before you in your kingdom. Either way, we will be held accountable for how we live our lives. 
So I pray, God, that as we unmind every single word in this precious text and we look about uh, what Paul wrote to the Thessalonians and we learn from them that we would grow in grace, Lord, and that we would be worthy of an apostle's boast. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Again, we have just finished up 1 Thessalonians. We had a wonderful break here where uh, uh, Dr. Stacy Cox from our new church plant in Gainesville, Georgia, preached. Uh, he just did a great job preaching last Sunday. It was a, a delight. He's just a, he's a delightful person as well. And it was just nice for us to be able to... We're basically the closest church to Gainesville. So we can uh, yoke along with them and help them to establish that wonderful work down there. That shirt, that's, Gainesville is bigger than Anderson, if maybe as big or bigger than Anderson, and there's only one conservative Presbyterian church in the entire town. Uh, so they have a need of another, of another uh, voice there uh, uh, in terms of the doctrines of grace in that town. So we need to re constantly remember to pray for Stacy Cox as well. But as we look at the text this morning, I want to read the text in its entirety, and we are just opening up 2 Thessalonians. It's very similar, of course, to 1 Thessalonians. Indeed, it's, he's kind of adding on to some of the principles that he gave us in 1 Thessalonians. But as we go through the, both these Thessalonian letters, again, our desire is to understand what it means like to live in the light of his return. He is coming back. What will be the condition of our lives when he does so? 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 5 this morning. God says, the Apostle Paul writes, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting, because your faith is greatly enlarged and the love of each one of you toward one another grows ever greater. Therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all of your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. This is plain, a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. And you'll notice if you look at your home group uh, uh, helps uh, insert here, we have broken this down to four different areas here. We're going to see that, the, you know, what kind of church might be worthy of an apostle's boast? Well, a kind of church that experiences grace and peace, a church that embraces faith and love, a church that exercises perseverance and hope, and a church that exalts in God's providence and suffering. And in looking at each one of these categories, you can see their verses, uh, words there, principles, virtues that we consistently look at in God's holy word. But one of the things that we understand as Christians is that we tend to forget. We tend to forget our great position in Christ. We tend for, to forget the application of God's word in our lives. So it's good for us to be able to repeat some of these matters. So first of all, a church that experiences grace and peace. Paul starts off uh, introducing himself in a standard letter of the ancient times uh, and, uh, and then giving them grace and peace. Just to remind you where, where he's coming from, it's important for us to understand the context of these and the historical background of our letters. Uh, he is writing to the Thessalonian church in, in probably year 49 to 51 at some point in time during Paul's second missionary journey, he and Silas and Timothy planted this church and it just grew 
uh, and many, many people came to Christ. But very shortly afterwards, uh, some people, the Jews who were jealous of what was happening there, stirred up some crowds, and basically they began to persecute the church, and they ran Paul out of town. Paul fled to Athens, where we have his famous Mars Hill speech there, and then he went to Corinth, and he stayed in Corinth some year and a half, and the, where he wrote 1 Thessalonians, and probably this is just following 1 Thessalonians by a couple of months. He's now writing 2 Thessalonians. He, he himself, of course, is the great apostle. He also reintroduces Silvanus or Timothy. Silvanus is also known to us as Silas. Silas is his Hebrew name. Silvanus is his Roman name. He was like Paul. He was a Hebrew, a Jew, that had Roman citizenship. Silas goes all the way back. Uh, he is kind of famous because he was the one when the Council of Jerusalem uh, wanted the information about being saved by grace, not by the works of the law, uh, to go out to the churches starting in Antioch. Silas was actually the one that was allowed to be the one that delivered that great uh, letter. Then, of course, Timothy. We love Timothy. Timothy is one of those. He's, he is human just like us. He is frail. He is maybe a little insecure. He feels a little overwhelmed by the position that he has found himself in. And Paul adored Timothy. Of probably if you were to make Paul uh, name one person he loved more than any other, it would be Timothy, his child in the faith. And of course, he writes First and Second Timothy to him later on. Timothy's mama and grandmother uh, were, uh, were Christians, uh, and Paul was so impressed with them when he went to Leicester, he asked them to join with him. So we have this reintroduction of, of the same church planners that were there before uh, when he wrote First Thessalonians. He's right to the Thessalonians, of course, just to remind you, this is a very prominent city. It's the capital of Macedonia and northern Greece there. It's about a quarter of a million in population, and it was a thriving seaport right under the shadow of Mount Olympus there where the, gods, uh, the Greek gods supposedly lived. Uh, but it also was, a, was a, a huge highway system. Basically, to go from east to west, you would pass through uh, Thessalonica. So it was a very prominent city, a very busy center of trade right there on the Ignatian Way. And then he goes on, he gives that, that who we are and who it's to. But then he makes this comment, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. There's again Paul's emphasis on the great doctrinal truth of union with Christ. And it may be that we've seen Paul, you see this all throughout Ephesians, this idea of being in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, that we've become so used to that that we no longer marvel at it. And that's a mistake. Because Christianity is unique in the fact that, that it states that the believers of Christianity, those who are following Christ, those who are actually converted, are in God. We are united together with Him. This is, a, this is a profound truth that you don't find anywhere else. It's not in Islam. It's not in Buddhism. It's not in Hinduism. It's not any of those things. Paul says in Colossians chapter 3, your life is hidden with Christ in God. We are adopted children of the living God. That's one of the symbols of baptism. We actually place God's name upon the recipient of baptism. Uh, the word Christian means that, that we are in Christ. So we have, as Peter says, become partakers of the divine nature. Now listen, sometimes you are tempted to question God's love because things just don't go well. They often don't go well. And there's some of us who are prone towards self-pity or resentment or bitterness or something like that. Uh, and we, and we're, we question that. Folks, if all you ever were was in Christ, you've been given the universe. God is your father. And when you are in Christ, there will never, ever 
ever come a time when you are out of Christ and God treats you as one of his own children. It's a personal, spiritual, eternal union with God. We become partakers of his divine majesty. And because of that, Paul can confidently bestow this idea, remind us of this principle, but declare it in a sense, grace to you and peace. Paul is always talking about grace to you and peace. Grace and peace, grace and peace, grace and peace, right? Grace, of course, is unmerited favor. We receive what we, we, what we don't receive from God. And because of that, because we're saved by grace, we can have peace. Can you imagine, well, you can't imagine this because this is sort of in all humans, the burden of having to earn God's favor, of having to prove your worth, of having to keep those Ten Commandments. We talked about the commandment to keep the Lord's Day holy. How many of us have already broken that today? Trying to, trying to make sure that we can earn our way to heaven, being so fearful that we have ordered our lives with a list of do's and don'ts and that sort of thing. Well, folks, if that is overwhelming you, as it does so many people in the world, because that's the natural nature of man to think they have to keep the law, you've forgotten grace to you and peace. If you're not experiencing peace, it's probably because you're not recognizing all the grace that you are under. And of course, this comes from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He, they are the source of both the grace and the peace. And again, just as a commentary, there, there's, there's so many people, uh, uh, liberal Protestants, uh, and of course, uh, humanists and everything, that would say that Jesus Christ is not God, that he was a man, he was a great teacher, he was a wonderful rabbi, and this kind of thing. Thessalonians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, are one of the earliest letters that Paul wrote. And they're already associating the church as understands this principle that Jesus is Lord. Now, when the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament scriptures, was translated, they took that word Yahweh, God, I am who I am, and they applied to it that word Kyrios, Lord. And now in the New Testament, they're saying, yes, Lord, and that is Jesus Christ. They, this is a a clear indication that the early church from its onset believed in the divinity of Jesus Christ. So I was thinking about a, a summary statement for this kind of thing. How can we have grace and peace? I mean, it was just so overwhelming because our nature is actually to rebel against God, to hate God. Uh, uh, our nature is to, to, to pursue turmoil in a lot of ways. Or to be legalist. And I kept coming up with Romans chapter 5. Would you please listen as I read this, uh, this, uh, uh, this wonderful text of Scripture? If you're, if you're a believer, this wonderful passage will tell you just who you are in Christ Jesus and all that he's done for you so that you can have a heart of gratitude and love. If you're not a believer, and there are some here and there's some watching here, this is a salvation verse. This is the verse that the Lord could use to press your heart where you realize I'm a sinner and I am in need of a Savior. Romans chapter 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith. Chapter 5, I'm sorry. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. There's our term. God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we exult in the hope of the glory of God. Not only this, but we also exult in, uh, in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation brings about perseverance. 
And perseverance, proven character, improving character, hope. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man some would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, he shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we are reconciled to God through his death and of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved for his life. You know, it's amazing. Uh, I, I don't think there's a parent here that wouldn't die for their child. There may be some of us here who would not die for a perfect stranger. I don't think any of us would die from someone who was trying to kill, for someone who was trying to kill us. In a sense, Christ died for people who were trying to kill him, who hated him. And he still showed his love from the cross for them. And that was us. And then Paul's point is, if he showed that kind of love to people who hated him, how much more, more love would he show for sons and daughters who have been adopted into his family, who now love him? Christ is going to give you grace, and he's going to give you peace. You just got to recognize that reality. We also see here a church that embraces faith and love here. We ought to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting. A grateful person is a contented person. You ought to have be, just be overwhelmed with grace. And indeed, contentedness is the secret to Christian happiness because it transcends circumstances. Just think about that. When you are contented, you carry peace and joy around with you wherever you go. You're not dependent on the weather being good or your bank account to, uh, to be full or your health to be perfect or the government to be appropriate or whatever it is. You carry that around with you. Thomas Watson in his uh, great work, Puritan work, The Art of Divine Contentment, says this, A gracious spirit is a contented spirit. The doctrine of contentment is very important, for until we have er learned this, we have not learned to be Christians. So many reasons why you're so vexed, why you're so down, why you're so anxious, why you're so irritable, why you're so bitter... It's because you've not learned this great secret, this great joy of contentment that basically says, God, I'm yours. I trust you for everything. The good, the bad, and the ugly that comes into my life comes through the hand of a God who loves me, and I am going to be content. I'm going to be content. The Christians you want to follow, the Christians you want to be like, have an overwhelming sense of contentment. It's contagious to be around those people. And it's, as in his introduction to 1 Thessalonians, you might remember that Paul starts off saying, your work of faith, labor of love, and steadfastness of hope. He loves that triad of faith, love, and hope. We saw that in Romans chapter 5 as well. But here he describes hope, hope in a sense of the perseverance in the midst of persecutions and afflictions. He says here, because your faith is greatly enlarged, this is a growing faith. Uh, faith, of course, is one of the key virtues of the Christian life. You can't be a Christian without faith. That's how you're saved, actually. But I love this principle of greatly enlarged. He doesn't say, boy, you just got it together. Uh, you know, your faith is just perfect. Never, flawless. Never, it's not. It's not. 
One day it might be good, one day it might be bad. One hour it might be good, one hour it might be bad. bad, bad. But what he says here is it's greatly enlarged. That idea is to increase beyond measure, or as some translators have said, it's super abounding. And it's organic like the growth of a tree. That's your goal, folks. You're never going to be perfect in this life, but you can be growing. You can superabound in this principle of faith. And so that your faith this year is greater than it was in general last year. That's the point. We don't look for perfection. It's not going to happen here because you're still in this body. But what we do look for is growth, healthy growth, a development of faith over, over time. But faith is absolutely essential because what's the opposite of faith? Well, unfaith. But also cowardice, timidity, um, uh, a, a, a stewing bitterness that doesn't uh, act appropriately towards, uh, towards God, towards others, that sort of thing. Uh, this was a big issue with, with John Bunyan, of course, the writer of Pilgrim's Progress. John Bunyan was jailed for preaching the gospel. Uh, and he wrote Pilgrim's Progress from, uh, from uh, that jail. And he would constantly bring in uh, characters that demonstrated a lack of faith. Here's Christian on the road to the celestial city, and he's being tempted by all these others that don't have his kind of faith, don't have Christian kind of faith. And I, I want to bring in uh, one, one example of that as Christian is going up here, hill difficulty. Now, at the top of the hill, two men came running to meet him. The name of the one was Timorous and the other Mistrust, to whom Christian said, Sirs, what is the matter? You're running the wrong way. Christian sleeps in the arbor uh, of difficulty. I'm sorry, wrong one. T Timorous answered and said, oh, we are going to the city of Zion and climb the hill difficulty. But he added, the further we went, the more danger we encountered. That's just like the Christian life, isn't it? So we turned around and we're going back from where we came, said Mistrust. For just ahead, there are a couple of lions in the way. We don't know if they're sleeping or awake, but we are sure that if we came within their reach, they would pull us to pieces. Then Christian said, you're making me afraid. Uh, what, uh, where shall I go to be safe? If I go back to my own country, which is prepared for fire and brimstone, I shall surely perish. And if I can get to the celestial city, I'm sure to be safe. I must go forward. To go back is nothing but death. But to go forward is fear, and, is fear of death and life everlasting beyond it. I will go forward. So mistrust and timorous ran down the hill and Christian went on his way. If you get spoiler alert here, if you... Uh, uh, if you listen, y'all need to be reading Pilgrim's Progress. OK, so no more spoiler alerts. You just need to read it. <laughs> Let me tell you what happens right after this. Timorous and mistrust, they're, they're gone. They're gone. They've proven themselves not to be genuine Christians. Christian keeps going. There are, in fact, two lions right there guarding the very place, the house he has to go. And they're growling and they're snarling and they're salivating, whatever lions do. And Christian, just in faith, walks right between them. And then when he gets on the other side, he realized they were chained the entire time. And he got to the house. And he was given armor. And he walked faithfully. And he made it to the celestial city. Mistrust and Timorous never found it because they didn't have faith. Now, he was scared. But he persevered to the end. Now, God had those chains on there the entire time. The lions were always chained. But the other two never learned that. Because they didn't have faith. In a sense, the lions that God allows you to see, that you to walk through, are always chained for his greater purposes to grow your faith so that it can be super abounding. Our faith needs to be enlarged. So how do you have strong faith? Well, it takes the grace of God. 
study. You need to know the Word. You need to read good Christian books. You need to, you need to get the uh, RefNet app and listen to sermons whenever you're working out, whenever you're walking, or whenever you're having dinner by yourself, whatever it might be. You need to worship. You need to be here. You need to join a home group. You need to come to Sunday school. You need to come to Bible studies. You need fellowship. You cannot make this journey by yourself. It was never designed to be one by itself. And if you're trying to make it by yourself, you're being selfish and you're showing a lack of faith because you're burned out on people and you don't want anything to do with them. So you remove yourself and you get worse and worse and worse and worse and less loving and less loving and less loving. And quite frankly, you're no good to anybody. You may still love God, but you're not demonstrating that by loving his people. And then, of course, obedience. You keep compromising. You keep making those little exceptions. You're never going to see this kind of great uh, faith that you need to have. He goes on to say the love of each one of you toward one another grows ever. So you've got the faith that's growing, but also the love is growing. That's wonderful. Now, faith, in a sense, addresses the head, right? John 17 says, this is eternal life, that they may know the only true God and Jesus whom you have sent. No faith is knowing who God is. I mean, think of the example of Abraham, right? Abraham's over in Iraq, over in the Ur of the Chaldees. God shows up one day and says, I want you to move. And the author of Hebrews says, he did not know where he was going, but he knew who he was following. Now, we kind of think we know where we're going you know, I mean, so many years before I retire, so much money in my banking account. I'm planning to major in this particular area. I plan to get a job here. I want to move to this city. But really, we're not guaranteed any of that, are we? We're not guaranteed what's going to happen in the next five minutes. So we don't put our hope on that. We put our hope on the God who's leading us there. Abraham didn't say, can you give me, can you show me this land? Maybe just a few postcards, maybe a PowerPoint to kind of show me some of the rivers. And, you know, can I put my shit? No, it's just like, okay. Wherever you take me, I will follow you, and I'm sure it's going to work out for good. And he's the father of all of the faithful. But love addresses the heart. It's what shapes our behavior towards God's and towards others. And again, this word, agape love, it's interesting. That's the pr predominant word for love of the four different definitions of, of the types of love that, they were, that exist in the Greek world. That's the most common in the New Testament, but it's the least common or very uncommon in the Greek Roman world. Because love, agape love, is the kind of love that's, that's love something no matter what. It's a self-sacrifice in love. It's an acceptance of people wherever they are at the time. Whereas eros love, which was the common love, is we think of it as erotic, right? A romantic love. But it actually is also means a love for something desirable. A love for something desirable. You know, we love pizza. I mean, who doesn't like pizza, Right? We, we, we have to agape Brussels sprouts, all right? That was probably the weakest illustration in the history of Christianity. But you get my point, right? So the wonderful thing about agape, the kind of love God expects for you, is the very kind of love that he has towards you. There was nothing in us that was attractive to make God love us. All that was attractive was in himself. Leon Moore says this, God loves us not because we are worthy or even as some think because he sees in us possibilities yet unrealized. God loves us, although he knows full well our complete unworthiness. He loves moreover without thought of advantage, for there is nothing that we can bring to him who made all things. He loves because it's his nature to love. He loves because he is love. 
Continually, he gives himself in a love which is for the blessing of others, not for the enrichment of himself. Love is the key to obedience. Dr. Carufi kind of mentioned that earlier. You know, really, what's the summary of the law, right? You look at of all, the, all the law of Moses, you look at all those requirements in there. They all boil down to love. Well, how do I know that? Because that's the summary of the law. Remember, Jesus said, you know, what is the law? How would you summarize the law? You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He doesn't say, obey. And praise God, he doesn't say, get your act together. He says it's love. It comes down to love. There's not, a, there's not a command that's not an issue of whether or not you're going to demonstrate your love towards God or for others. It's so simple, it's overwhelming, isn't it? But it's this kind of agape love where there's nothing in the, in the subject itself that requires us to love. You know, Philip Yancey goes on for a while talking about a church is a community, not a club. It's easy to love people in a club. You kind of check them out. They usually got something similar to with you and everything, and you kind of hang out together. That's a club, right? A church is a community. There's plenty of people sitting to your left and to your right that you wouldn't normally volunteer to spend time with, including maybe your children at some points in time. We, we don't necessarily, you know, it's not a club. It's a community. So we, we are forced to agape people that we may not necessarily be inclined to agape. But that's part of the design because a lot of what agape, uh, the realization of agape is you just got to get your eyes off yourself. And you're actually worshiping God by loving the unloving, loving. And because we can do, uh, we can do this because Christ, the love of Christ controls us, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Now we see a church that exercises perseverance and hope. He says here, therefore, we ourselves speak proudly of you among the churches. This is where the boasting comes in of your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions, which you endure. So now Paul here, he's coming in, he's boasting about him and he's not boasting about his own marriage. Remember, this is the guy that says he was the chief of all sinners. The chief of all sinners. But he's boasting about what God has done in the church. Galatians chapter 6 gives you some, and the First Corinthians 1 gives you some insight into boasting. Uh, Galatians 6 says this, Paul again saying, But may it never be that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I in the world. First Corinthians 1, let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. So you're not bringing the tension to yourself. You're not the, I'm as the greatest and the prettiest and the most scientific or whatever it was that I mean. It's like, God is the greatest. God is the most wonderful. God is the most powerful. And you're welcome to boast about that. But you're also welcome to boast about what God has done. What God has done. And it can be the big things, like a church. It can be the little things. I've been, y'all know I've been cleaning out my garage since Christmas. We've gone from a household of six to two. And there's stuff everywhere. And, uh, and I, I'm thinking about my children. I don't want them to have to deal with all this stuff when, you know, when we go one day. So we've been cleaning stuff out. And I've had some assistance from the children. And we've given stuff away and everything. And I finally got where you can see the floor of our garage. Nancy says, I can do a three-point turn in our garage. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. And, I, and, 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 and I'll just be on the house and I'll just go down and look at it. And you know what happens to me every time I look at my garage? I just say, thank you, God. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. Now, I'm not being weird. Well, 
you know, at that moment. God didn't get in there. I never saw God in there lifting boxes, giving th- stuff away, sending stuff out, sweeping through spider webs or anything like that. It was all me. But God allowed all those situations to happen. And I'm just overwhelmed by, by the fruit of God's working through me in that labor. Little thing. Clean out the garage. But we ought to have this constant sense of gratitude for what God's doing. And we ought to be bragging about them. Bragging about them. Folks, if this church succeeds, it's because God made it succeed. If it fails, it's my fault. And it's the elder's fault. And it's your fault. And he's hoping, he, you know, he has this triad of faith, hope, and love. And, and here, hope is really kind of in this principle of perseverance here. This continuing going on through the difficulty of the trial. Uh, sometimes, in 1 Corinthians 1, 3, it's, it's, uh, it's uh, translated uh, steadfastness. It actually means to bear up under, okay? And you can bear up under steadfastness, perseverance, because you are in Christ. Because you're in, you can be under the trials and the tribulations of your, of your life. So he talks about here in the midst of your persecutions and your trials. So Paul's speaking boldly about the fact that they are moving forward even through the difficulties. Two categories here, persecutions are trials that come from the outside because you're Christian. Afflictions are experiences that come from those outside difficulties. Rick Phillips writes this, One of the chief benefits of persecution, though, is that it reveals the difference between true and false faith. You know, we, no one wants persecution. The churches in America has been spared so much of what our brothers and sisters in Christ are going around. But the advantage of persecution, when it costs you something to go to church other than your inconvenience, when it costs you something to come to church, you're going to know who the real Christians are. We saw a little glimpse of that during COVID, maybe. Maybe, maybe a little bit of that. Some people who never came back after COVID. Church, churches that stayed down for a year. And it's interesting, those churches are having a hard time starting back up. Because people didn't miss them that much. When you get real persecution, you're going to know who are the genuine believers because they're willing to go to church, to be associated with the people of God, even when it costs them something here. But the whole point here is this, this persevering kind of hope. You, do, you don't give up. You kind of stay in, in the fight. I like what Oswald Chambers says here. The life of faith is not mounting up with wings, but a life of walking and not fainting. You know, most of us are not these incredibly gifted, incredibly talented people. We're just average people. I was thinking about Paul. Paul, you know, I've always wanted to be like the Apostle Paul, uh, although I understand he was not a very attractive man. Uh, but I've always wanted to be like the Apostle Paul. And, and I thought, you know, I'm just so average. I'm even 5'8", which I think is like the average height of all humans on the planet. Not in this church. Everybody's tall in this church. Uh, but I've always wanted to be like Paul, but, you know, he who called himself the chief of sinners. And I'd, I'd have to confess to you, I'm really just sort of a mediocre sinner. I'm just kind of average at it. I'm not that great at it, you know. It's, I can't even sin like Paul, right? Here's, here's a principle here that Jesus talks about. It's amazing how many times we go back to this parable of the soils. But this is where, this is where the Corinthians are succeeding when most people fail. Y'all, this is what we want to be like. This is what we want to be like. Because what Paul boasts about is the same thing that the Lord boasts about. 
Jesus, the words of Jesus from Matthew 13. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one in whom the seed was sown beside the road. And the one on whom the seed was sown on the rocky places, this is the man who hears the word immediately receives joy, yet it has no firm root in itself. It's only temporary. And when, here's our two words, affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately he falls away. And the one on whom the seed was sown because of the, uh, among the thorns, this is the man who hears the word and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. And the one whom seed has sown on the good soil, this is the man who hears the word and understands it, who indeed bears fruit and brings forth some a hundred, some sixty and some thirty. So the steadfast faith, love and persevering hope that demonstrate uh, the right kind of soil, they, 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 they are not the rocky soil. They're not tempted to abandon God persecutions. They're not the thorny soil. They're not tempted to abandon God because of affliction. They are the soil that brings forth fruit. And one reason why they're bearing fruit, folks, I know you don't want to hear this. Well, those who've been afflicted need to be reminded of this. But if you haven't gone through a lot of suffering in life, you may not want to hear this because it scares you. But the, the reason why they're bearing fruit is because of the difficulties, because of the persecutions. They had to make a choice here. Psalm 119 says this, verses 67, 71, and 75. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep thy word. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn thy statutes. I know the Lord, thy judgments are righteousness, and thy faithfulness thou hast afflicted me. Now, Paul's boasting about them. Think about this little church. It's, it's a fairly new church plant in Thessalonica. Paul is not saying, man, I can't believe that building you got. Oh, I can't believe that choir. What a sound system you have. Man, and you got the bankers and you got all the professionals. You got all the rich, fat cats of the town. Man, that is un that's not what he's boasting about. Because these people probably didn't have a building. They met in homes. They probably were mostly slaves. They were the, the despised. Probably a lot of women who had no rights at that time. There was nothing about them that would have made, made, it, made someone want to recruit them into the Rotary Club. They were just average, under-the-radar kind of people. And yet, they had persevering faith. And Paul's bragging about them. Paul is bragging about them. Now we see here a church that exalts in God, uh, God's providence in suffering. He goes on to say here, now has, this text might have confused you before and the commentators differ and I'm going to give you kind of the options, the two options here. But he says here, this is a plain, this is, okay, what he's just talking about, right? Persecution, afflictions. This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. So basically here, Paul's focusing on the area where the Christians are, are tempted to give up, these areas of, of suffering here. James Grant says this, If we are going to guard our hearts against the temptation to turn away from Jesus, when we suffer, we must have the right perspective on suffering and trials. You see, Christianity says there's a reason for suffering. There's a reason for suffering. And that's counter to all the other reasons. You know, the, uh, in the Old Testament, you remember how Jesus was always defending the widows? 
always going to bat for the widows, so he, you know, and he was pointing out the widows that were good and everything. One reason why is in that culture, if you were a widow and God took your husband, it's because God's mad at you. You deserve some kind of judgment because you've done some kind of sin. And you're, 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 so they look down on, here's these poor widows who've lost their husbands, and yet they're maligned by the culture as, as, as if they, they've been, got the judgment of God upon them. Okay, is that, this, is, this is very typical of people. Christianity says, no, no, there is a profound, important, and loving purpose for your suffering and your difficulty. Because it's going to grow you up. You're going to experience grace and peace and hope. And it's going to glorify God. Now, here's the reason why this is confusing. He talks about God's righteous judgment. Our tendency, to, when I think, we think of the judgment of God, we think of something negative, right? Like, we, you know, we think of a guilty Take them off to prison kind of thing. But judgments can go either way. One view is that, this is, that he's setting up what he's about to go into about how people uh, are going to be punished. God's going to take the people who are punishing the Thessalonians, God's going to punish. He's a just God, which is true. He is a just God. He, go, he will go on. We'll look at this in future Sundays. For after, you know, he goes on to say in verse 6, for after all, it's only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. Verse 8, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Calvin thought that's what he's talking about here. He's about to, it's a transition sentence to go into how God is going to judge people who are anti-Christian, okay? But the text really doesn't read that way as well. So I would submit to you, as some other commentators have, that we are to take that idea of judgment in a positive sense, as in innocent. Innocent. Basically, he says, I don't find you guilty. You are innocent and you are free in a sense. It's, it's not negative. It's positive because basically what he's saying is that the judgment we have here demonstrates you're actually my children, that you're genuine Christians. You are bearing up under suffering and the judgment is you're mine. You are mine and I am yours because they are succeeding through this. Again, Rip Phillips says this, the fact that they were continuing to trust the Lord while suffering was a sign that God was working in them and was on their side, thus anticipating the final judgment of, his, their, of their enemies. Suffering Christians sometimes ask, why isn't God doing something? The first answer is that God has already done something in the most needful in sending his son to die for our sins. The second answer is that God is upholding our faith under trials so that we may be saved in the end. So they're being judged to, to demonstrate, in a positive way, to demonstrate they're actually, uh, they're actually going to be Christians. You know, this kind of goes back to that principle in James, right? Consider it all joy, my friends, when you encounter various trials, knowing that testing your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. We keep trying to convince God, if you just give me everything that I want, I'm going to be just an amazing Christian. God know you actually know better than yourselves too, right? But God knows better than that. God knows better than that. This great cosmic design is that God uses suffering for his glory and for our good in the end. As the author of Hebrews says in 12, For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as sons. Uh, just like a, a worldly father would do. James Grant says, God has designed suffering to work for us, not 
against us. And he goes on, Paul says, for indeed you are suffering here. Andrew Young summarizes Paul's point and his perspective by saying this, if they could only see their sufferings in the right way, they would realize that God was at work in, in what was happening to them. Far from letting them down, he was in fact preparing them for glory. Christian in that pilgrim's progress is a much basically succeeded in that trial, not even knowing that the lions were chained, but the lions were chained. And Christian was a better man as a result of going through that. And God will take care of us, even through the difficulties. Isaiah 43 says this, But now, thus says the Lord, the Creator, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Folks, our goal as a church, your goal as an individual, as you're living in the light of his return, uh, is, is, to, is to have the kind of character that other people could point to. That's what Paul's doing. He's saying, look at this church. I can't wait to tell all the other churches. I have been telling all the churches what the Thessalonians are doing. That's the kind of church we want to be. But it will not come without a cost. It will not come without a cost. But in paying that cost, we realize this grace and this peace, uh, this love, this persevering hope, this understanding of God's providence in our lives. Revelation chapter 2 closes with to the letter of the Thyatira. And to the angel of the church of Thyatira, the son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire, his feet are like a burnished bond, says this. I know your deeds and your love and your faith and service and perseverance, that your deeds are late are greater than the first. They had a growing faith. They had a growing love. And therefore, uh, Jesus is boasting about them. May that be our church as well. Father, we do turn to you right now, recognizing just how frail we are, how wrong we are, how selfish we are, God. And, and it will take an act of the Holy Spirit to change us, for us to grow, to have a superabounding faith, a superabounding love, to be able to persevere under trials. But it, that's what we're coming before you right now and asking, that you would give us that kind of character and give us that kind of love that sees through the trial to the face of God. Bless us now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.